In the second and third days of his visit to Bountiful, Jesus gives the Nephites the highest blessings of the gospel, including healing, understanding of the mysteries, and most of all, sanctification. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you so much for being here again for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. And before we begin, I want to mention a couple of things which I like to mention I haven't talked about for a couple of episodes. First is I want to say thank you to all those who have made a donation to the podcast. Uh, that's very generous, not required, but very much appreciated. If you'd like to make a donation, it's gospeltoctrine.com donate. I also want to thank Paul Castro for his many wonderful transcriptions that he does of the episodes of the podcast. You can find those on our website. And finally, I want to encourage all my listeners to spread the word, either by leaving a five-star rating or review, or just telling a friend about the podcast. We have a question today. Uh, Brian asks, in conference, and this is before um, last last weekend's general conference, so he's speaking now of April conference. Uh, Brian asks, in conference, President Nelson invited us to study the gathering of the 12 tribes. Have you discussed this in a prior podcast? And if so, which one? What resources would you recommend for someone to begin this course of study? Thank you so much for your question, Brian. Uh, I, I took a look back over my old podcast episodes, and I think the one that from Gospel Doctrine that will do you the most good would be Season 1, Episode 40, so it's exactly two years ago this week. And this is the episode in which I discuss the final chapters of the book of Isaiah. Now, Brian, I'm going to spend a little more time answering your question than I normally would this week because our lesson in the, the final chapters or the closing chapters of Third Nephi has a lot to do with the gathering of Israel. And specifically, Jesus mentions many gathering chapters from Isaiah, but also from the book of Micah. Uh, now, unfortunately, Micah, for, unfortunately for the purposes of this lesson, Micah and Jonah happened to be in the same Old Testament uh, lesson in our old Sunday school manual. And so I was uh, so caught up in the book of Jonah at the time that I, fe- I spent very little time on Micah. That was back in season one. And so I think a, a great way to learn about the book of Micah would be to Google the Bible Project. That is a resource that I sent my listeners to quite often uh, during season one, which which are a series of animated video instructional videos where uh, you hopefully you've seen these before, where somebody's almost like they're drawing on a whiteboard and the animation goes along with the words. So it's a way of presenting a subject where there's a visual aid. That's the the Bible Project is a nonprofit group that makes videos about every book in the Bible, and also a lot of concepts in the Bible. So if you Google Bible Project and Micah, Micah is a book that the Savior quotes extensively here in these chapters, along with Isaiah. So Micah, Malachi, and Isaiah are the three Old Testament prophets that Jesus brings with him when he's teaching the Nephites in the in uh, Third Nephi chapters 20 through 26, which are the... Um, which are the contents of today's lesson, or the focus of today's lesson. In addition, uh, obviously many Old Testaments, in fact, almost every Old Testament prophet 
has been speaking about the gathering of Israel because the gathering is intimately tied in with the prophecies about the fullness of times. And I think the first prophet that made specific mention of this is Moses. And Moses, both in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Leviticus, talked about the gathering of Israel. And gathering and scattering for Moses were connected. And so uh, you might look in Leviticus chapter 26, and that is the chapter where Moses is making a bunch of promises or through God through Moses is making a bunch of promises to the children of Israel. And he's saying, uh, I'm sorry that you're going to be scattered, um, but if you are scattered, then I will gather you with mercy again one day. And in fact, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is very similar. Jeremiah, in chapters 24 and, of course, chapter 31, uh, mentioned this. A lot of the Old Testament prophets did this towards the end of their books, but some of the Old Testament books are not chronological, and Jeremiah is one of those. And so uh, this was probably something that he wrote towards the end of his ministry, or it could be, because uh, it talks about the gathering. In chapter 31, Jeremiah talks about how God will write the, in the last days, God will make a new covenant with his people, and he will write the words, he will write the law, the Torah, in their hearts. In other words, he will change what's going on inside. That's an important passage for us today because we can see the fulfillment of that prophecy right here in the in the book of Third Nephi. Jesus is very specifically writing the the law on the hearts of the Nephites, and you can see that it's almost you can almost see it happening as you read these verses uh, that we have for us today. So that's Jeremiah chapter thirty one verses thirty one through thirty four. And tied in with that, I usually tie in, these are my two favorite passages in the Old Testament. I usually tie in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now, in, uh, in the latter half of Ezekiel 36, he talks about how God will take out our stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. So God is going to change what's on the inside. Is Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, two prophets who are separated by uh, geography, one prophet in exile, one prophet remained behind with the destroyed denizens, the citizens of Jerusalem. And so they were both leaders of the people of uh, who are still faithful to Jehovah in the respective gathering places of Israel. And they'd already experienced the scattering, so they had no more need to prophesy of that. At this point now, they're talking about how God will change them. Uh, and, and Ezekiel, Ezekiel went on to say in chapter 37, he went on to say that just like uh, a scattered people is is like a, a graveyard, like a valley full of dried bones, desiccated bones, and decayed corpses. And then he had a vision where these bones were stood up on their feet and muscle came upon them. And then the breath of God blew into these, what had been just bones that became bodies and then became living bodies, and then rose and served God. They were a mighty army in the service of God. And this is the way that uh, Ezekiel talked about the wonderful events that would happen in the latter days, which is the gathering of Israel. Jesus himself initiated the gathering of Israel towards the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 28, uh, towards the, well, in verse 16 through 20, he said, uh, Go ye into all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Holy Ghost will come upon them. Now is the time. Uh, so the the nation of Israel or the people of or the peoplehood of Israel, the covenant of Abraham was always meant to extend 
beyond its genetic lineage. It was always meant to include everyone in the world. And Jesus was specifically commanding the disciples, this is meant to be a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic, multinational church. There, there should be no limits. Go ye into all the world. And Isaiah talked about this. Moses talked about this. Zechariah talked about this. And of course, Malachi, Micah, and Isaiah. Now, for us as modern readers, we often, when reading scriptures that are about specifically the gathering of Israel, we confuse it or we conflate those passages with passages about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of days, the eschatology of the scriptures. What happens when uh, Jesus Christ comes again? What are the major changes that come over the earth? And a lot of times, these prophets, for them, the important event, the event that they were looking most forward to, was just the simple idea that Jesus Christ would begin to change the people of the earth. So we're going to talk about the difference between those two things, because for us, we still think of one being future, and now we think of one being past or sort of boring. It's, it's the life we live in. Israel's being gathered, yeah, so what? Right, we th- we think that, uh, and and if you if you told a member of the church that Israel is being gathered, they wouldn't say so what, but they think, okay, but when does the really exciting stuff begin? And part of the the lesson, the message, in today's lesson, is that this is the exciting stuff, the gathering of Israel. What's happening right now, and has and what has been happening since the time of the restoration, is the exciting part. So exciting, in fact that none of the ancient prophets could go very long without talking about it in great and animated language. So I hope that whets your appetite about the gathering. We're going to be talking about the gathering throughout the lesson. Thank you for your question, Brian. If you have a question to ask and would like a scriptural answer on the program, send me an email to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Before uh, I get into the actual chapters in the Book of Mormon, I'm also going to say something about last week's General Conference. Uh, there was there was so much I wish I could talk about, but uh, this is a Book of Mormon podcast, and so I will limit myself to this. And this is very uh, relevant to today's lesson, to President Nelson's talk about the name Israel. So, uh, as you as hopefully you remember, and I'm pretty sure it was on Sunday morning, President Nelson got up and he said, "I have been studying <laughs> the Old Testament, and I have been studying with Hebrew scholars." He started his talk by saying, I have a prophetic insight. I can't remember if those were the exact words, but he did say, I have an important insight. Um, And the reason I'm bringing this up is, this is what we do on this program. We study the, we pick apart little words and try to find alternate translations for uh, seemingly unimportant words in ancient scripture. And then we find important insights from there. So this is the prophet sort of giving his ringing endorsement to this practice, which is trying to gain spiritual insights by bringing, breathing new life into ancient scripture. And um, what he has done by saying, we're going to talk about uh, the name of Israel, and what the prophet has done by giving a particular translation to that name is to open up a wealth of information for us and uh, a whole host of connections and associations that we can make using uh, now what what we have to regard as a preferred translation of the name Israel. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, what uh, President Nelson said was that the prophet Jacob, who was renamed to Israel, received a name that meant let God prevail. 
And I'm going to talk a little bit about the story, about how Jacob got his name. And all of the, believe me, all of this stuff is relevant to today's lesson. So if you think we're off topic by talking about the Old Testament, it's not the case. Uh, specifically because Jesus Christ says, O house of Israel, several, several times to the Nephites. And so if we know what he means when he says house of Israel, then the layers of meaning in the Book of Mormon just go deeper and deeper. So the story goes that, as you know, Jacob and Esau were twins, and they were born uh, one after the other. Esau came out first, and then Jacob came out holding on to his heel. Uh, in fact, Jacob, Yaakov, which uh, means the someone who holds on to the heel, or uh, the word Akab means heel in Hebrew. And if you remember, a little later on in life, as their father Isaac lay dying or, or grew close to uh, the time of his death, he was hoping to give a blessing to his sons. And Jacob, first of all, he, uh, he was able to buy, as you, as you might say, or trade some of his porridge for his brother Esau's birthright. And then when the time came to receive that birthright, he tricked his brother. And his brother went out hunting, and Jacob, uh, instead of having a wild animal, he went out and slew one of their, their goat kids, and he made his father savory meat, the kind that he likes to eat, and he brought it into him, and he dressed himself up as, as his brother. And he received the blessing of the birthright. And later on, when Esau returned, uh, his father re- realized, well, I f- this is my interpretation of the scripture, but he realized, I felt the spirit when I was giving that blessing, and so uh, I'm sorry, but your brother really will receive the blessing that I gave him because... Uh, that was a true. They were true words that I spoke, and Esau was so angry that he said, "It is justified, or it's it, isn't it a good thing? It, weren't you right when you gave him the name Jacob?" And the interpretation, the spin that Esau put on the word Jacob at that time was, "It means trickster." So now, when we, when modern scriptorians, when modern scholars talk about Jacob, the name Jacob, they generally assume that Jacob was a bad guy, that he was wicked. Uh, he was a deceiver. He was a trickster. And that is kind of, that's the meaning, that's the pejorative meaning that his brother Esau gave to his name. But it definitely does mean somebody who follows at someone else's heels. It's not a strong name, right? It, it has the connotation of someone who's not a leader. And I want to clarify something. When I say that Jacob wasn't a name to be proud of, I don't mean that today it's not a name to be proud of, but it's a name to be very proud of. Jacob in English means the name of an ancient Jewish prophet and patriarch with whom God renewed the covenant of Abraham. So it's a name to be very proud of in modern English. Okay, I'm speaking of the ancient Hebrew meaning and specifically the what it came to mean after Esau was done with it. He turned it from perhaps a quite normal name into a pejorative. And that is how a lot of scholars look back and they see Jacob is by the meaning that the shade of meaning that Esau gave the name at that time. So if you have the name Jacob, be very proud of it. It's a wonderful name in modern English, and it probably was for most of Jacob's life until Esau called him the trickster. The story goes on that Jacob has to run away because Esau is so angry at him, he wants to kill him. Years later, he returns, and as he's returning to the land of his fathers, he sends his family, his all of his followers on ahead, and he stays behind across this river, and he sleeps 
alone. And this story is reported in Genesis chapter 32. So when he's there alone, he's, we can presume that he's communing with God. And it says that a man wrestled with him throughout the night. Now, this story is not very well understood or it's not very clearly translated in the, in the Bible. So we have to read between the lines a little bit. Um, but the point of the, the, the bare facts of the story are that he wrestled with the man throughout the night, and then at the, towards, towards morning, the man uh, was able to dislocate his thigh. But then the man gave Jacob a new name. He said, you won't be called, what, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name's Jacob. And he says, you won't be called Jacob anymore. You'll be called Israel. And we are given to understand that Jacob has actually been wrestling with either God or the angel of God, someone with divine investiture of authority who can represent God. And just as Jacob can have more than one meaning, it can mean someone who follows at your heels, but it can also mean someone who is a supplanter, a usurper, a trickster, someone who circumvents the rules or the truth. Uh, these are all different and alternative interpretations of the word Jacob. And similarly, Israel has, it's actually quite controversial what the meaning of Israel is. Most people would say Israel means one who wrestles with God. So that's why it was quite an exciting thing for the prophet to weigh in on this, because this is an ongoing controversy in modern Hebrew scholarship. We don't know exactly, it's hard to know, what ancient words meant, because there's not it's not like we have a dictionary. The way that we figure out what ancient words meant is we have to find synonyms. And sometimes the word just, it has so many shades of meaning, it's used in different ways, and we can tell by the context that it might mean this or it might mean that. So that's the case with the word Israel. It comes from Sarah, actually, which is also a name, but the root Sarah means either to struggle, to persevere, to persist, to contend, to strive, and it means to prevail. But it means when it means prevail, it means it in the sense of to have to have princely power or to rule and reign. Isn't that interesting that uh, President Nelson would choose this particular meaning of the word Sarah? So the Y on the front of it, Yisrael, is actually how it's said, Yisrael, and it the the Y is sometimes people think it's the marker of a name. So the marker of a, a masculine name in Hebrew will have a Y at the beginning. So Yisrael could mean uh, struggles with God, a man's name. But it could also be a marker of what's called the jussive mood. And a jussive is just a fancy word for a third-person imperative. When you talk about imperatives, you're usually talking about something in the second person. If I, if I were uh, Jacob or Isaac, and I said to my sons, "Go out and make me some savory meat." The understood subject of that is you. This is a second-person imperative. But when we talk about third-person imperatives, it's usually somebody who's not present or who I'm not talking directly to. So, for example, um, I could say, "Long live the king." I'm I'm declaring my will that the king will do something, but I'm not speaking directly to him. Uh, the famous quote from Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. That's a third-person imperative. And Israel, Yisrael, could also be, the, uh, the the Y at the beginning of it, could or the Yud, could mean that we are putting this verb, Sarah, into the jussive mood, which means let someone, Sarah, whatever Sarah means, with God, El. 
Isn't that interesting? So if we choose this meaning of Sarah, which is to prevail or have princely power, then this is a perfectly legitimate. This is this is right in line with what all of these words could have meant in ancient Hebrew. It could have meant let God have princely power. It could and many people have interpreted this to mean in English we would have to change the order of the words, but they've interpreted it to mean one who prevails against God. So and that that would seem to be suggested by the context in Genesis chapter 32 because Jacob refuses to let this person that he's been wrestling with leave until he receives a blessing. And we're going to talk a little bit about how that all shook out. But then this godlike figure, probably Jehovah, and I'm going to explain why it is that Jacob could wrestle with Jehovah because he was not wrestling with him physically, in my opinion. But the name has been alternatively interpreted as one who wrestles against God, one who prevails against God, a prince of God, uh, God's victory. These are all alternate meanings for Israel. And that's why it's so wonderful that the prophet not only weighed in on this, but he explained it as sort of a prophetic insight. Now we know, now we have very clear direction on what this name, uh, what is a profitable meaning for us to interpret this name. And now we can go back to Genesis chapter 32 and we can say uh, that Jacob, when he was wrestling with God, he wasn't physically wrestling with God. Why was his thigh put out of joint? In my mind, uh, he was kneeling all night. This is my own interpretation on on this uh, these verses 22 through 30 in Genesis chapter 32. He was kneeling all night, wrestling with God. And what does it mean to wrestle? You don't have any more vigorous physical activity that you can do than wrestling with someone. I used to wrestle years ago in high school, and I, I don't think I've ever engaged in anything that has tired me out as much. And I've done water polo, I've done rock climbing, but wrestling was by far the most taxing physically, and it's because you're vigorously striving against someone the entire time. You can't let up for one second. It's like sprinting, but sprinting for a marathon length. And I think that the reason that that word is used so aptly to describe this kind of prayer, this kind of mighty prayer, is when you're praying to God and you absolutely require an answer from God, you have this feeling that Enos described as, my soul hungered, uh, then you, you cannot let the subject drop. Nevertheless, you can't change the will of God to move from what is right for the people, for his children that are part of his plan. You cannot take God outside of his plan to endorse your own wishes. And so wrestling with God is this process where you won't give up. You won't, and, and there are two ways of giving up. You can stop praying or you can turn your prayer into a tantrum, right? One is to fall silent, and one is to assume that God is the one who is being testy or is being childish, when in fact it's you. And I've, I've done, I know, I know this because I've done both of these many times in my prayers. But to wrestle is to remain humble and therefore remain in the prayer. Nevertheless, continue to ask God and continue to explore new ways to ask him for the things of which you stand in need. So if you can imagine kneeling all night and engaging, this is why they call it mighty prayer, uh, engaging in this sort of prayer the way that Enos did or the way that Jacob did, then you could understand why at, at, in the morning time, Jacob would say to God, I won't let you leave before you give me a blessing. 
And then God says, similar, similarly to what happened with Enos in the Book of Mormon, he says, you will now receive a blessing because of the, of the faith with which you prayed all night long. And what was that blessing that God gave to Jacob? He said, your name will no longer be Jacob. And uh, it doesn't really matter how we interpret the name Jacob. It was a secular name. It was an earthly name. It was something that Jacob would not proudly proudly display. It described a person that Jacob would rather not be. And God said to him, you're no longer going to be known as this thing, this earthly thing, these, this weak attribute. You are now going to be one who lets God prevail. So in this wrestling that you've done all night, you refuse to give up. You finally learned to turn your will to the will of God. And now I can write my word in your heart. Now I can put a fleshy heart where your stony heart was. I can change you from the inside out, and therefore I will rename you from Jacob to Israel. This process, repeated over and over again, is what gathering means. The first gathering of Israel was the morning when Jacob refused to let God depart before receiving a blessing. That was the moment in which Israel was gathered for the first time. And every time someone repents and comes unto God, and in the words of President Nelson, lets God prevail, Israel is gathered a little bit more. Now, finally, we're ready to talk about 3 Nephi chapters 20 through 26. We have the context that we need to now understand these chapters in a way that we couldn't have before. So, uh, remember, each time you... You hear Jesus say to the Nephites, uh, Hear, O house of Israel, then you know that he's talking to them as a, as a people that he is currently gathering. Jesus, in these three days that he spent with the Nephites, he changed every one of their hearts. He healed them. Uh, we've talked a, a few times about how in the New Testament, in Greek, when the when the scriptures talk about Jesus healing people and forgiving their sins, it uses the same word. So Jesus, when he heals people, he sees no difference between doing it physically and doing it spiritually. In other words, a huge part of what happens is totally irrespective of our own power. When Jesus heals us, uh, it is irrespective of our own power to heal ourselves. We make choices to allow him in, and the rest is really up to him. And that seems so counterintuitive because we have to work so hard to let Jesus in. And we think that we're doing so much work when really all we're doing is opening the door. And then he will heal us. So Jesus is changing their hearts. He is gathering. All these people are physically there, but he is gathering them by teaching them, by displaying to them the mysteries of heaven, by bringing the Spirit, by introducing the sacrament, by calling uh, priests and baptizers and disciples, apostles from among them. These are all elements of the gathering that Jesus is performing. So, uh, briefly, we're going to, I'm just going to summarize for you uh, chapters 20 and 21, because they are, Jesus is largely quoting the books of Isaiah, or the scriptures of Isaiah and Micah. Now, Micah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah around the time of Isaiah. In other words, it would have been entirely possible for the Nephites to have had in the brass plates the writings of Micah. There actually is some controversy over whether the Nephites would have had all of the writings that we today 
know as the book of Isaiah because uh, there is a very widely accepted theory that there were actually two Isaiahs in the final several chapters, uh, I forget if it's the last 10 or 11 chapters of Isaiah, were written by a so-called Deutero-Isaiah or a second Isaiah that followed a hundred years later. So this would have been something, if this, this actually were the case, it would have been more doubtful that those final chapters were included in the brass plates. And similarly, we don't know for sure whether the book of Micah was included in the brass plates. We don't have a lot of other indications elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. Nevertheless, Jesus obviously knew all of the words that he had revealed to all of his prophets. So whether he's introducing new scripture to them or quoting old at this point, uh, we're not entirely sure. Nevertheless, we do know this, that these chapters, the third and fourth chapters of Micah, are almost entirely concerned with the gathering of Israel. So remember, in the sacred history of the human race that's found in the Bible, or uh, you might call it the history of Israel, the history of the covenant people. The, the act of exile is analogous to death. So Adam and Eve get kicked out from the garden. Israel uh, is destroyed by Babylon. These are two very analogous parallel events. It's separation from God, separation from the promised land. It symbolizes death. And therefore, when someone is gathered in, when a nation is gathered in, when Adam and Eve uh, receive the angel of the Lord, this is a, a form of resurrection, a redemption from death. And it's able to happen because of the intercession of a redeemer. So a redeemer is, in Old Testament times, someone who would rescue a captive. And usually this involved the payment of some sort of ransom. So when Jesus, when Jehovah calls himself the Redeemer in the Old Testament, when Jesus calls himself the Redeemer and his disciples call him the Redeemer in the New Testament, they're playing on all of these parallels that exist. So I've, de- I've decided not to take the time to go through all the individual scriptures of Micah and to, to pick apart which, which verses come from Isaiah, which verses come from Micah. They're actually quite intermixed throughout chapters 20 and 21. But I want to say to you, now you have a context that you can read them and understand them for yourself. They're all dealing with this idea that Israel will one day return from exile. They have been exiled. They've been cast aside. Uh, in the time of Micah and Isaiah, this was still in the future. But So it's being prophesied that they'll be scattered, and then they'll one day be gathered in again. But really, to these prophets, this physical gathering, uh, as miraculous as it was, would have been secondary, would have been... Uh, just details, the, the geographical location of the people who are being gathered matters far less than what's happening in their hearts, what's happening in their inward parts, as Jeremiah put it. And so a couple of resources for you for these chapters. One is an article on bookofmormoncentral.com called, Why Did Jesus Mix Together Micah and Isaiah? You can read that uh, article And in that article is outlined, there are a couple of huge chiasms in these chapters. One is uh, outlined in the article I just mentioned. Why did Jesus mix together Micah and Isaiah? It starts in chapter 20, verse 10, and it goes all the way into chapter 22, verse 17. This is a chiasmus that goes 14 layers deep. So I'm not going to go through the individual parts of it. I'm just going to point out something. Uh, Secondly, there's another chiasmus. These chiasmus chiasms that get this large, um, they're not cut and dried. There are things that 
there are words that appear in between the elements of the chiasm. And so it's almost like it's debatable whether this is actually intentional or not. These seem pretty clear. The second one starts in chapter 20, verse 43, and goes to chapter 21, verse 10. So it's a lot shorter, but it is itself 11 layers deep. Okay, if you were paying attention to the verses I just cited, you will notice that these two chiasms overlap. One completely contains the other. So here's Jesus teaching the Nephites, and he has two hugely complicated poetic structures that are uh, coexisting in the same words. This is mind-bogglingly complex. And the point I wanted to make about that is that if uh, you were to try to write this sequentially, if, for example, you were Joseph Smith pretending to translate the Book of Mormon, but but actually composing the Book of Mormon, and by all accounts uh, dictating it sequentially without the need to refer to notes, uh, it would be impossible to extemporaneously compose this kind of work. I made this point to a friend of mine uh, this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember if I mentioned it in last week's episode or not, so I'm going to mention it again. But we were discussing the Book of Mormon, and I told him, I said, the real question about the gospel, uh, this is a friend who is uh, questioning what he believes, and he's he's grown up, he's served a mission, he's grown up Latter-day Saint, and he's questioning how he feels about it. And I said, really, the question is, is the Book of Mormon an ancient record or is it not? Uh, that is, if, if you're wondering what you believe, then, then focus on that question and try to get to the bottom of it. And I, I made this point to him. I said, if Joseph Smith had said, at the time that he brought forth the Book of Mormon, here is this book that I wrote. I wrote this book. I composed it. It is a metaphor. I wrote it as if it were an ancient record. If Joseph Smith had claimed that, we would today be studying Joseph Smith in every theological college around the world uh, that, of, of the Christian persuasion and talking about what a spiritual genius Joseph Smith was on the level of Thomas Aquinas or St. Francis of Assisi or Martin Luther. We would be talking about how much Joseph Smith had done for everyone everywhere who wants to believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, because Joseph Smith claimed that he did not write the Book of Mormon, everyone that I just mentioned, the the followers of all of those uh, great Christian thinkers, have to hate him because he claimed something that was outside of their canon. But the accomplishment, the, the sheer magnitude of the accomplishment of bringing forth the Book of Mormon would have marked Joseph Smith as a spiritual genius under any other circumstance. This is, in my opinion, undeniable. The Book of Mormon is at that stature of Christian thought. It absolutely revolutionizes what it means to believe in Christ and to follow Christ, and I mean that in the best sense. Uh, It is not only vastly complex, but also astonishingly simple. And it is so layered with meaning, and it is so internally consistent and so illuminating as to the character of Jesus and the doctrines of the gospel, that it is a towering work that every Christian everywhere should study. 
even if out of only a pure academic interest. That's the level of philosophical, theological, and literary work the Book of Mormon is. And we have one of the, one of the most powerful examples of it is here in chapters 20 through 22. Um, if you would like to, a description of the second chiasmus I mentioned, you can find it in an article called Covenants Taught Through Chiasmus by Eric Graham, and that's on the BYU website. So the first article was called, Why Did Jesus Mix Together Micah and Isaiah? If you want to understand those two chiasms, wow, uh, they're, par- they're powerful, they're complicated, they're long, and they overlap. Here's another interesting fact. In 3 Nephi chapter 20, if you look in verses 22, um, you'll see a mention of the covenant of Jacob. And then you look three verses later, in, verses 20, in verse 25, and then again in verse 27, Jesus mentions the covenant of Abraham. So first he mentions, normally you would think that Jesus would mention the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he mentions the covenant of Jacob, and then the covenant of Abraham, second. Uh, that's a little bit interesting. But if you realize that in the book of Leviticus, I mentioned earlier Levitic- Leviticus chapter 26, in the book of Leviticus, uh, towards the end, uh, verse verse forty-two, Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jehovah calls the covenant that he has made the covenant of Jacob, of Isaac, and of Abraham. So he lists these same patriarchs in reverse order. And so, what may be happening here in Third Nephi is that Jesus is pointing those uh, well-studied Nephites who know their Leviticus. He's pointing them back to Leviticus chapter 26, which is called the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, or of the Torah, right? The Leviticus, the holiest book in the Torah, and this is the holiest chapter in the book of Leviticus. He's pointing the Nephites back to this, and this is where they are uh, instructed that of the blessings and the curses of obedience, this is where they are told that you can either earn exile or you can earn mercy, depending on how you conduct yourselves in the promised land. Now, one of the most important parts uh, and one of the most memorable parts of the chapters that we have today is the part where Jesus talks about what the Book of Mormon means. So he he does a lot of prophesying to the Nephites, and he says, when your uh, seed, when your posterity, when these words that I'm teaching you now come forth to them through the Gentiles, then you will know that all of these words that have been spoken of by the, the holy prophets are about to be fulfilled. Now, um, a lot of Latter-day Saints take that to mean, and, and, and I referred to this a little bit earlier, they take that to mean that the Book of Mormon is a sign of the second coming. And then they think, wow, wait a minute, the Book of Mormon came out in 1830, and here we are 200 years later. So, if this was a sign of the second coming, then um, I have a different meaning, I have a different idea of what signs mean than God does, because 200 years uh, later is not a very good sign, right? It doesn't give us much of an indication as to the timing of something. And so I, I want to clarify this, because what Jesus is promising here is something a little bit different. He's saying, then will the things which I've been talking about come to pass. And all he's been talking about It's not his second coming in glory. It's not changing the earth. It's not all the things that you and I are looking forward to. 
It's the things that the prophets have been looking forward to, that the Nephites are looking forward to. And it's the thing, it's the entire subject of these chapters in the Book of Mormon, which is the change that will come over the hearts of those who follow Jesus. And the fact that God will be able to do this work at a greater uh, to, with a greater efficiency, at a greater speed, and with uh, in a more widespread way than he ever has before. This change that will come over all of the earth, it doesn't mean that everyone will be changed, but it does mean, as uh, Nephi foretold uh, 600 years before Jesus' teaching here, Nephi said, the, Nevertheless, the followers of God shall be found among every people. They'll be scattered abroad in all the earth. This gathering, although it won't be universal, it will be widespread, and it will be widely known. And to illuminate that concept a little more clearly, uh, we're still in 3 Nephi chapter 20. Read verses 35 and 36. Jesus here talks about a couple of things that are holy. He says, The holy arm of God will be laid bare, and Jerusalem my holy city. The word holy in the Old Testament has a specific meaning. It means something that's set apart. And let's Let's consider some of the things, the holy things that Jesus has brought about and the holy things that the ancient Israelites uh, had among their people in their society. Uh, so Jesus, for example, what are, one of the first things that he teaches were that he, uh, when, he, when he visits the Nephites are the, is the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the commandments, and he refers to the ancient command, commandments. He says, you've heard it said by those of olden time that you shall not be... Uh, you shall not kill, but I say you shall not be angry with your brother, right? He he gives an update to the commandments. Now, where were the commandments stored in ancient Israel? If you think about that for a minute, you'll realize these tablets that the commandments were written on, they were put within the Ark of the Covenant. They were stored inside the holiest relic, inside the Holy of Holies, which is the holiest room in the holiest building, in the holiest place, in the holy land, right? So, the it was absolutely kept sacred in the in, in like three layers of being set apart from the people and what jesus does is he immediately shows up and he teaches these commandments to everyone the what else was in the the ark of the covenant the rod of aaron what does jesus do he comes and he ordains 12 high priests who are now going to minister to everyone and ordain others who can also officiate in the ordinances of the gospel Jesus institutes the sacrament, and he uses 12 disciples to, to pass this bread among the multitude. Now, 12 men carrying bread would have represented to that multitude the showbread that exists in the temple, these 12 pieces of showbread that could only be eat, eaten by the priests that were allowed to enter into the holy place inside the temple. So, this bread that was kept apart from the people is now shared with everyone, and they're commanded to partake of it regularly. The, the, those who were anointed were kings and priests in ancient Israel. But in, among the Nephites, they're all anointed. Uh, among Latter-day Saints today, if you go to the temple, you receive an anointing. So everyone is anointed. What, in other words, what Jesus has done is he's taken all the things that were holy and he has, he has given them to everyone that is willing to be gathered. He is sanctifying the, it, through this way. And that, and it, uh, is, is symbolized by the receiving of the Holy Ghost, the baptism of fire. All of these things are a part of the baptism of fire. Everyone that is listening to Jesus is being sanctified. Now, this was the difference between Old Testament holiness and New Testament 
holiness, uh, symbolized by the vision of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, no, I believe it's uh, chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of himself in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and he sees God on his throne in the Holy of Holies, and he, and he thinks, I'm going to be killed. Uh, I, I deserve to die. I'm an unworthy man. The point is, Isaiah was not one of the priestly uh, lineage, and therefore he was not allowed to be there. The, the beliefs around the temple were that you had to be not only a priest, but you had to be ritually clean to go into the temple, and if not, your life could be forfeit. This was the way that ritual cleanliness worked. It was, ritual uncleanness was contagious in ancient Israel. If you touched a dead body, if you touched somebody else who was unclean, if you touched bodily fluids like blood, you would be made, you would be rendered unclean and it would take you uh, anywhere from one day to several days in order to cleanse yourself and be ritually pure again, be worthy to go into the temple. The remedy for Isaiah's uncleanness was one of the angels that surrounded God picked up one of the coals of incense from the altar and put it on Isaiah's lips and in doing so purified him. And Isaiah learned through that that the holiness of God was so great that it was contagious. Rather than being uncleanness that was contagious, when you dealt with God, he was the one whose purity was contagious to you and it had the capability of purifying you. Now this was only one prophet who had this experience. The the general population of Israel at that time did not have this experience. But here is Jesus sharing that experience that Isaiah had with the entire people of the Nephites. He's basically taking one of the coals, symbolically, from off the altar and putting it on their lips and purifying all of them by in introducing the sacrament, by baptizing them, giving them the gift of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them these mysteries, healing them. Again, healing and forgiving are the same act in the New Testament. So through all of these things, Jesus is gathering every person who is within the sound of his voice. He's gathering all of them. They've been physically gathered. They gathered themselves, right? That was the choice that they had to make. That was their agency in it. All they had to do was show up, and Jesus is doing the rest. Now that takes us to chapter 22, and this is basically a, a restatement, not not word for word, right? But it is um, Isaiah chapter 54. Now, I'm not going to go too much into this. It's basically poetry, and it's really powerful poetry. These are prophetic poems about the healing that will come upon the people of Israel, and this prophecy is already being fulfilled in their own ears. Jesus is teaching them, uh, here are some prophet prophecies that have been around for 700 years, and not only will they be fulfilled one day, but they are today being fulfilled. If you want to, uh, and, I, and I recommend reading this, if you want to understand more about uh, Isaiah chapter 54 and, uh, by extension, 3 Nephi chapter 22, there's an article I recommend by Cynthia Howland called, uh, she's a BYU professor, called Redeeming the Desolate Woman. And uh, she's talking, she's not talking about how women need to be redeemed by God. She's talking about how this woman, this uh, symbolic woman that is discussed in Isaiah chapter 54 is redeemed and what it means for all of us. So that's a, an interesting article to read, Redeeming the Desolate Woman. And we won't spend any more time on chapter 22 other than to say that. So I, I recommend that article and I recommend that chapter to your study.
Now in chapter 23, Jesus starts talking about scriptures that he needs to add. So chapter 20 and 21, he's talking about scriptures they already have, Micah and Isaiah. And now in chapter 23, he says, And now I have to give you some more scriptures, which you haven't yet been given. Specifically, I'm going to give you the words of a prophet, uh, of an Israelite prophet called Malachi. But before I do, I want to, I want to give you a scripture that you should have had. And that is, he brings Nephi up, uh, Nephi who is now his prophet, and he says, Nephi, do you remember that, the, that Samuel the Lamanite talked about people being resurrected? Oh, at the time of my resurrection, that there were Nephites who were resurrected, and they appeared uh, unto many. And Nephi says, yes, Samuel did prophesy about that. And in fact, uh, exactly what he said came about. And Jesus says, well, why wasn't it written down that he prophesied it? And, uh, and then uh, Nephi remembers that that had not been written down. Now, I pointed this out a few weeks ago, but if you go back to Helaman, and if you read chapter 14 of Helaman, it's all about Samuel's prophecies of the destruction, uh, thunderings and lightnings and quakings of the earth. And then all of a sudden, there's this one little verse that says, verse 25, and many saints will appear unto many, and then more thunderings and lightnings and quakings of the earth. So I pointed that, that out at the time. And again, this is an indication. This is not something that Joseph Smith could have sequentially planned for. He's like, you know what, I'm going to take a one-verse break, talk about something that doesn't really seem to fit, and then 30 chapters from now, I'm going to tie it all in and make it make sense why that verse is out of place. That uh, is yet, to me, yet one more evidence of the ancient origin of the Book of Mormon. And it's also an indication that to God, every verse of Scripture really does matter. This is one verse that Jesus wanted inserted, and we have that verse in in, uh, Helaman chapter 14. We know exactly what work that uh, Nephi did because we have it preserved for us. And that one verse was so important that Jesus, not only would Jesus stop and talk about it in front of everyone, but then Mormon, hundreds of years later, would write several verses about what Jesus had done. This was incredibly important. And therefore, it brings greater meaning to the phrase, feast upon the word, right? We can think about the scriptures as that really, really dense brownie rather than a piece of angel food cake that you can shove the whole thing in your mouth, right? The, the scriptures are things that should be savored, and we can slow down when reading the scriptures and take it a verse at a time. And uh, as President Nelson did, we could even take it one word at a time, and we can come up with a new interpretation for an ancient word. And it can give us incredible new insights as to what God intended for us when he used that word. That brings Jesus into... Uh, Malachi chapter 3 and 4, what we have today as 3 Nephi chapter 24 and 25. And again, I'm not going to pick apart the these ancient Old Testament chapters other than to say this. You can find, if you have your ear, if you have ears to hear, you can find elements uh, that we only find in the temple in these two chapters. Things like obedience and sacrifice, chastity. I shouldn't say we only find in the temple. Uh, We find mirrored in the temple in a way here that seems almost specifically and ordered to, to be a temple text, in much the way that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, how the sermon at the temple was a temple text. 
these two chapters from Malachi appear to be the same thing. And the important thing here is to note that when Jesus could talk about anything in the world, what he's teaching them are the very same things that you and I learn in Sunday school and in the temple. These are the mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus is unfolding to them, uh, powerful experiences, things that cannot be uttered. And yet, we have so much of this today in the, in the modern restored church of Jesus Christ. And it should make us all feel so grateful. It's similar to how when Jesus appeared to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he had been resurrected, and all he had to do was reveal himself and say, Look, I'm resurrected. Don't be sad. But instead... He shared the scriptures. He shared with them something that every Israelite had. And it proved that he would uh, rise from the dead, that he would be resurrected. And then he showed himself. And a similar thing is going on with these Nephites. He's giving them things that to us seem very simple. And yet, these are the powerful things that Jesus wants to reveal. We all have them. We just need to learn to, to value them and prize them the way that they deserve to be prized and feast upon them the way that they can be feasted upon. So a few elements to look for, obedience and sacrifice, chastity, not profaning holy things, consecration, rebuking and casting out Satan, turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. All of these things are associated in one way or another with with temple work. And that is an insight from John Welch, somebody that I've cited uh, quite frequently in the last few weeks. Now, in chapter 26, that brings us to our final chapter of the lesson. In chapter 26, Jesus is now expounding all of the things that we don't know about, the future, right? Remember, our ninth article of faith is that many things that God will yet reveal, many great and wonderful things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We like to say that we have the fullness of the gospel, and yet uh, I think it would behoove us as Latter-day Saints to realize that the Book of Mormon, like uh, like our general knowledge of the things of God, is not complete. And I'll put the word complete in quotes. Obviously, the Book of Mormon is, is it has a beginning, middle, and an end. But there was a lot that was left out of the Book of Mormon. And you might remember that there was a portion of the gold plates that were sealed. And here, Mormon even alludes to the fact that he can't put everything into the book that he wants to. Uh, on the large plates of Nephi, the, the record from which he largely took his abridgment, he says, are written all the things that Jesus talked about, things that were not lawful to be uttered. He talked about everything that would happen right up into uh, and and including uh, what I was talking about earlier, the things we all want to know. When is the second coming? What does it look like? Uh, Those are things that would be exciting for us in in modern times to, to read about. And what Mormon says about that is, he was commanded by this the spirit not to write them down, and and God told him, first they have to be tested. They have to believe this lesser amount of truth, and then these other things can be given to them. What the timeline of that might be, I have no idea. But if there are any chapters that could convince us that what we do have is enough, it should be these, because these are basically the chapters where Jesus could teach anything in the world, and he just teaches these scriptures, these chapters that we've had our whole lives. He just repeats the the Sermon on the Mount. He just talks about some scriptures from Isaiah and Micah and Malachi, things that we've had around for centuries. 
So that's not just a testament to how much is yet to be revealed. It's a testament to how much we've already had revealed that we don't yet understand, that we could search and that we could learn from and that we could deepen ourselves in. Here's a final insight from Brother Welch. He points out that the dates of the dates around Jesus' arrival, his destru- the destruction, uh, the, the birth of Jesus, all of these things were understood. And yet we never read anything about the date on which Jesus departed from the multitude. And one of the insights or the maybe the conjectures, the questions that he raises about this is this. The, in the Old Testament world, the Holy of Holies was a place that was considered to be outside of time. When you were there, you existed in a, in a sphere that was particular only to God. It was as if you had been raised up from the earth and you existed in a new place, this overlap between earth and heaven. And when Jesus was with them, where he was became the Holy of Holies. They lived in a world almost outside of time because they were with Jesus, and no one bothered to keep track of exactly when Jesus departed because they felt like from that time on he was always with them. And of course, as a little bit of foreshadowing, we know that the book of 4th Nephi is coming soon. And what happens in 4th Nephi are hundreds of years of peace. And so here's another article that's uh, very interesting to read. Why did the peace last so long in 4th Nephi? That's the title. You can Google that. But the, the main thesis of that article is that what happened here in chapter 26 to these children, it changed them so fundamentally It planted the love of God so deeply in their hearts that for generations afterwards, their descendants were relying on the testimonies that they gained on this day. We we read here that these children were revealing powerful truths about the gospel, even things more powerful than Jesus himself revealed. He gave them the power to reveal to each other after he was either, uh, it does seem like he came another day after this day, and he witnessed part of this. But then after he left, they, they continued to, to prophesy and to reveal things to each other that were even more powerful than the things Jesus taught. This kind of holy experience, this kind of uh, sacred transformation, this gathering, as we've defined the word in this lesson, has changed them so fundamentally, so deeply, that their parents, that their children, that their children's children, and their children's children's children would not compromise in their loyalty to the Savior. Now, we may not have Jesus physically among us, teaching these things, giving us these experiences today, but what we do have are access to the same teachings that the Nephites were so hungry for. We have access to the same method that Enos and Jacob used to gain the favor with God, which is mighty prayer. We have access to the same gathering that we can both bring into our own hearts and share with others around us and bring everyone into the circle of what our prophet has recently described as letting God prevail. It really is as simple as what these Nephites did is making the choice to show up, opening the door of our hearts to Jesus and letting him do the rest. In the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.